Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the podcast of War Room, the U.S. Army War College Online Journal. I'm Colonel Buck Haberichter, a member of the editorial staff and faculty member at the U.S. Army War College, and I'm glad you've joined us today. Today, we continue our discussion of the impacts of Executive Order 9981, which abolished organizational racial discrimination in the U.S. Armed Forces and eventually led to the end of segregation in the military. This July marks the 70th anniversary of this truly momentous order, and it prompts us to consider the role that race and the fight for civil rights has played in American history broadly and in American military history more specifically. Today on the podcast, we welcome two guests to discuss the integration order and its continuing legacy. First, we have Professor Chuck Allen, who is a retired Army Colonel and now Professor of Leadership and Cultural Studies at the U.S. Army War College, and he is in the studio with Brigadier General Earl Sims, United States Army retired. General Sims served 33 years in the Army and has held leadership and command positions at all levels, culminating as Commanding General of the U.S. Army Soldier Support Institute, or SSI. Two career highlights are when he served as the 59th Adjutant General Army Human Resources Command from 1995 to 1998, And he was additionally the chairman of the National Board of the Rocks, Incorporated, from April 2012 to May of 2018. The Rocks is an organization that focuses on strengthening the Army's officer corps through mentorship, professional development, scholarship, fellowship, and community outreach. The organization has 26 chapters and interest groups located around the world. Let's turn now to their conversation. Hello, I'm Chuck Allen. I'm Earl Sims. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, Thank you for having me. As you know, this summer is the 70th anniversary of the Executive Order 9981. So I want to start off by asking you to relate to to me uh, and our audience how your life has been affected by the Executive Order 9981. What was the legacy of this change? Uh, First, I would like to probably discuss the impact uh, and the exposure that I had, and that is through uh, parents and grandparents. Uh, My grandfather... um, Uh, was drafted into the Army, and uh, he was with the regiment uh, out of um, Brooklyn uh, that was uh, sent to Europe. Um, uh, The two regiments that, two black regiments that were sent, and subsequently were attached to the French. And so, needless to say, I heard all of the war stories that that he had imparted. Uh, And even though they were separate, as they came back, I think there was an expectation uh, that life would be a little different than when it when they left. Uh, come to find out, it obviously didn't uh, change that much. Um, my father uh, was uh, in World War II as a part of the Red Ball Express, and uh, needless to say, the continuation of uh, the stories and so forth. So, um, as as a part of the Red Ball Express, he was he was very. Um, very much taken by uh, General Patton, so I heard all of the Patton stories. So for me, it was not a question as to whether I was going to uh, join the Army, um, but uh, when. And um, I went through uh, ROTC at an HBCU. HBCU is? Uh, historically Black College. Mm-hmm. And at the time, ROTC was a requirement for all of that were able. Uh, so uh, immediately started... Uh, with the drilling and, and the courses uh, that you typically find in the ROTC program today. The difference is today it's all voluntary. 
back then it was mandatory, even though there was no question that I was going to participate and uh, certainly enjoyed it and uh, had a great cadre, um, developed uh, my leadership skills there. And so uh, without question, I was looking to uh, join the Army. Um, as I reflect back on that time, uh, certainly integration had just occurred. Uh, I started my uh, schooling uh, in a segregated system. What school was that, please? Uh, there was a little uh, elementary school in uh, Moorfield, West Virginia, a little tiny town of about 2,000 people. Um, the, there weren't enough African Americans uh, living there, and so um, they decided to build a 12-year school which attracted my mother, who was a school teacher, and couldn't mm -hmm. find a job. And so that was where mm -hmm. uh, they moved uh, from where I was born, was, which, is, which was in Cumberland, Maryland. Mm -hmm. uh, so we moved to Moorfield. And um, up through the eighth grade, I attended uh, a segregated uh, school system. Uh, my freshman year in high school was the first integrated system that I took part in. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I guess I experienced uh, the benefactor, I was the benefactor of uh, the integrated uh, school system, uh, but also had understood what the segre segregated system was all about, whether it be education uh, or dining uh, or travel, etc. Did your father or his relatives talk to you about the integration of the armed forces? Um, they did. Uh, now, my father was right there, right at the uh, cusp at the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. Now, my grandfather, obviously, it was fully segregated at, the, at that time. Uh, the unit that my father was a part of, was the Red Ball Express, was, <clears throat> was consisted primarily of African-American soldiers led by um, white officers. Uh, so I guess you could say that was integration from that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, they very much still felt as if they were segregated and separate. So with the EEO 9981, what do you think were some of the challenges of effective integration once the rule was put into place? Oh, I believe that, and I think that this is not only true from an integration standpoint, uh, but I think the military has been at the forefront of most social changes that uh, we experienced here, we take for granted today. Um, but that actually um, have impacted our society um, then and certainly today. So you were how many years in service? Uh, I served 33 years. 33 years is quite a long time. So what changes did you see in the actual implementation of integration over the course of your career? Um, by and large, it was mostly by um, the type of branch um, that you, would, uh, you were a part of. Um, I was a part of the Adjutant General Corps, and um, there were two, two of us in my basic course. Two of us? Two of us, two African-Americans, mm -hmm. and two uh, African-Americans in my advanced course, and probably did not serve with another um, captain or major until um, my Fort Carson days, and that's probably some 10 years. Uh, before I served with another contemporary and organization. Now, obviously, I saw and knew, knew others, but uh, uh, that's how long it 
uh, took for me to really associate with a contemporary that was African-American um, beyond the basic course and advanced course. So how were you accepted within those PME institutions, education and training? Um, I, I never had really a problem. Uh, I can't say that I had a problem where discrimination was at least visible to me and or obvious to me. Uh, and so I think from that standpoint, I counted myself uh, fortunate. Um, and I don't know whether integration had something to do with that back through my high school years or not. Um, so I count myself fortunate as I reflect on that, uh, that I wasn't, uh, I didn't experience that. Now, one thing that was humorous in my first duty assignment at Fort Campbell, mm -hmm. um, I was running a records team and um, I needed to register my car. And so I took it down to the MP station and I inspected it and, and said, okay, fine, and put a sticker on my car. Uh, through my innocence, I didn't realize that there was a difference between an enlisted sticker and an officer sticker. Mm -hmm. And so I came back to my office and I proudly walked in and my NCOIC, who happened to be African-American, I said, uh, sir, did you get all straight? And I said, yeah, sure did. And so I guess it was lunchtime. <clears throat> he went, went out and because our cars were parked next to each other. And he came back in and he was furious. And so he was on the phone to the MB station and uh, properly was chewing some young soldier out. And so he says, I'm going to send my lieutenant back down to you and you fix the problem. And so I said, what's the problem? He said, you don't realize that uh, you should have a blue sticker, not a red sticker. And so the presumption on the part of the individual, irrespective because I had been in uniform, uh, was that uh, I was enlisted. Did you find a difference between how you were treated on the military base, like at Fort Campbell, and then how you were treated in the surrounding area and communities? I didn't notice the difference because we didn't uh, do much off the post. We were at Fort Campbell and the communities outside, um, we really had no need uh, to go there. And a young couple with, with a young baby, uh, we were content to, to uh, socialize and, and do what we needed to do uh, to take care of the family right, right on Fort Campbell. So I didn't experience anything there. Um, but certainly as I would travel, uh, I certainly experienced it. Well, I had experienced that growing up uh, to where um, anytime we would go somewhere and uh, my, my home uh, that where I grew up was two hours from Washington. Mm -hmm. And I noted that every time we would uh, travel to Washington to visit relatives, everyone packed a lunch um, and you tended to go to the bathroom before and then once you arrived, because uh, there still were signs of um, colored only, uh, et cetera, whether it be uh, restaurants and or bathrooms. So it seems that there was a protective bubble or cluster within military, within military bases. Uh, yes, that was really a safe zone, you might say, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, being exposed uh, to the segregation side of the house. And how did the officer leadership implement and reinforce integration and equal rights within your military uh, organizations and societies? It, it wasn't uh, real apparent to, to 
me as a lieutenant and say a young captain uh, because I followed what I was told to do. Um, now, whether there was an impact uh, on my uh, efficiency report, I didn't note it, um, but I, it, I don't know that I would have really recognized it had it other than had it been very negative, and my reports were all, I thought, fairly good. Uh, so in counseling and coaching, um, I, I was accepted. Uh, I, I really can't say that I ran into any difficulty with any of my superiors. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, you'd have a challenge with a non-commissioned officer. Uh, you could tell that they didn't care uh, for taking uh, direction, um, but that didn't bother me. I, I look at my shoulder and say, I'm or on my collar, and I'd look on his shoulder, and on, and I said, we knew who the boss was. So um, I, I really didn't experience any problems then. So were your officer colleagues also supportive of you? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I, again, I, I was, I guess, very fortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, there is evidence of de facto segregation within the Army by military occupational specialty or branches even within career field designations. Uh, why do these clusterings happen by race and ethnic groups? Why do you think, please? Uh, there's a hierarchy within the um, military, and uh, the longer, the more senior you become, the more you're able to recognize that. Uh, in order for certain promotions to occur, uh, it really is tied to uh, certain skill sets and, and uh, professional career fields. Uh, typically, those are combat arms. Uh, that is the center of gravity of the Army, so it's understood. And so uh, where African Americans seem to uh, exist in the officer corps was into combat service support and combat service areas, uh, or combat support areas. Um, combat arms uh, had been the place that uh, African Americans had tended to be uh, rare. Uh, Vietnam somewhat changed that uh, just simply because we were at an all-out all war and we needed as many uh, good people as we could get. Mm -hmm. um, so that seemed to change, uh, ch change it a bit. Uh, it is interesting that over time we've gone through a cycle of um, where African Americans were well represented uh, in the combat arms, and I speak primarily of the combat arms. Um, and then here more recently, we've seen the scarcity in the combat arms. And so... Um, so I know that in August 2015, you co-authored an article in Army Magazine called More African Americans Officers Are Needed in the, in the Combat Arms. Would you give us some background on that article and why you thought it was needed, please? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate the question. Uh, there were two, uh, three of us who, who co-wrote that. Um, both the other two authors... Uh, were our co-authors were combat arms, our combat arms officers. And um, I, I saw the challenge uh, that we were having with regard to upward mobility. Uh, ultimately, when I say upward mobility, I think in terms of uh, who can be eligible or be, be able to uh, compete to become the chief of staff of the Army. So you look at the very top and you see how many who have been chiefs of staff or four stars or three stars and you start to understand um, that the route to most of those are combat arms and so as, as 
in my profession, uh, which was the personnel business, uh, that was something that I was acutely aware of. Uh, at one point, I was running the promotion system uh, for the Army uh, and for the <clears throat> well, across the Army. And, um, and looking at the results of those promotion boards, I would tell you very quickly that there was a disparity across the Army. And as a result, we began looking at, well, why and uh, how do we change that so that we could blindly look across the force and say everyone had an opportunity to ascend to be the chief of staff of the Army. Now, everyone is, is still something that is particular to and had been and still, I think, is particular to combat arms. So you mentioned before that the promotion uh, opportunities uh, evidence a disparity. What were some of the things that were in the files or the uh, career assignments and patterns that were different based upon ethnic or racial groups? Uh, I think it was, uh, it was attended uh, comments associated with the ability to lead. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that would then be coupled with the t type of assignments that were afforded individuals. Uh, there is a clear path uh, for a combat arms officer uh, that really is a, you know, you're a part of a line unit, a line unit being a TONE unit mm -hmm. versus a TDA unit. And, um, and those, the combat arms uh, folks who ascended to the senior ranks were obviously more in the TONE organizations. And they grew to become, um, they started as uh, S3s, let's say, uh, whether it be in the company or battalion, uh, and or then the uh, chief, of, chief of staffs at that level, uh, and or XOs. Um, and so when you see that career path, it's, you don't have to be you know, super intelligent to figure out uh, when you look at a profile of a senior officer how they grew. And so you put three or four or five or six of those together, they almost looked identical. So one of the things that uh, we were trying to do was generate uh, some interest on the part of uh, all minorities uh, or all individuals to educate them. This, If you want to be successful in the Army, uh, then this is the direction and course that you need to take. Now, most would say, well, you had general officers, uh, four-star general officers in the combat service support. Uh, that is very true. Uh, but certainly uh, there were no combat service support officers who had become chiefs of staff. And we are, we're, when you look at the top of the system, I think that's what we have to look at. What do you want to be? You very likely may want to be a logistician, and that is fine. I mean, we're not saying that that is negative. Mm -hmm. But if you want to be the senior leader of the Army, uh, the course to go that way principally is through, and it's historically has been through uh, combat arms. You mentioned the kind of the tacit knowledge of how to be successful in a career with that being a flag officer or chief of staff of the Army. Uh, how does a young person coming into a military as an officer understand and realize that? What are the uh, guidelines or advice and counsel that's being given? Well, I think today it's, it's uh, clearly more sophisticated uh, with technology as it is. Uh, you can educate yourself by and large by, by using research. But our system is set up in such a fashion that that is something that is very um, upfront 
and viable as you start through the school system. Uh, you are taught how to be successful at that next grade. And a part of that is learning, obviously, the technical skills. Uh, but the other aspect of it, and the thing that's most important in the Army, is the leadership side of that and what you need and how you need to lead. Uh, but then you, uh, I think we have, uh, certainly today, are far more sophisticated in saying, here is what a career path looks like. And if you want to achieve this, uh, it's no secret, this is what you need to do. So how is diversity affected by mentoring and coaching throughout the service? Oh, tremendously so. Uh, typically, a mentor is a formalized process uh, that both the mentor and the mentee have to agree to uh, that and uh, the regularity upon which uh, they communicate with each other. Uh, so the mentoring piece is uh, reinforcing what the Army has laid out as the model for success and uh, the particulars of that. Uh, certain of the keys are what type of assignments have you had, um, but at the at the end of the day, the evaluation report uh, becomes the center to that because that's what the promotion boards look at, that independent entity that is selecting that next level of leaders. Uh, they use that, uh, that re efficiency report uh, and how others have viewed uh, this individual over time. Uh, it's not just a one, one assignment that makes or breaks you. Mm -hmm. But over uh, time, you will see a trend. And so you are really uh, tied to whoever your boss was, uh, your intermediate boss and your senior boss, uh, how they view you. Um, back to your question about mentorship, mm -hmm. um, those are the things that are imparted to uh, the young officer uh, on how they, how they perform, how they uh, uh, do their job and understand well, when they receive their evaluation um, what they should be expecting. And uh, hopefully by that time, uh, unless they've had some challenges, uh, which everybody does, uh, how was that transmitted and then how did the individual react to that uh, to offset anything that was negative and or continue to grow upon those things that are positive. Mm -hmm. I think we've heard the conversation uh, sometimes that like mentors like. So how does diversity get affected by the Army or leadership and promoting diversity uh, by not only ethnic background but also gender and those other aspects that are important for us, we think? I think, I think you know, diversity, we, we tend to uh, oft, often uh, think about diversity as only black, white, black, brown, black, uh, yellow, uh, and so forth. Um, there's not only that that uh, I think is is prudent. I'll take that on first. Um, in today's world, it's less, um, but in the past, there were differences in backgrounds and culture and how people were raised and how they thought about certain things. Uh, diversity from that standpoint of thought and understanding uh, made both individuals, I think, wiser and un more understanding uh, the frailties of individuals. Um, when you, you look at it from the standpoint of backgrounds and so forth, and you take that to the next level, uh, learning from individuals with different backgrounds, different heritages, 
and, and so forth allows you as a leader to further understand that you're going to be in charge of individuals with uh, a very diverse background. And so having diverse leaders, I think, prepares you for that. Um, we often find ourselves in, in a group think uh, that if just because you hang around with a certain group of people, that's how you, you tend to think. If you are not looking beyond that, then your ability to lead, lead large formations that are diverse uh, has been somewhat have you have prepared for, uh, at least mentally. So you've addressed two aspects of the diversity in organizational performance. We know that EO9981 was uh, trying to stop a negative, a segregation of, within our society. And you're making the illusion or a conjecture that diversity uh, gives you better performance. Now what support do we have within our military service, our history, or other encounters that can uh, support that? Diversity helps us. Diversity is, is, is one of the... Uh, the things that is probably most powerful uh, for our organization. Uh, when most ask me that question, I relate it to them from a military standpoint. And I would say that when you look at our formations, and I'm speaking primarily the Army, when you look at our formations, uh, we reside at, in our installations in a segregated environment, uh, i.e. the infantry battalions are located here uh, the artillery battalions are located somewhere else. The support uh, units are located somewhere else, and they have their own identity and their protocols and uh, the idiosyncrasies in the mm -hmm. manner in which they train and what they train on uh, as their specialty are rather segregated. But as soon as you are ready to go to fight or go train, um, what happens? Uh, those organizations are integrated into a, it's still integrated into one unit, mm -hmm. uh, but each of those components uh, come together and have to understand who they're supporting, why they're supporting it, and so forth, which is a part of their training anyway. So I, I look at uh, the integration and the power of integration as one that uh, diversity is a power multiplier. Diversity of thought is always a power of, of um, solving a problem. Well, thank you for that perspective. As we look the, at the existing military, we have, again, demographics covering the whole spectrum of our society. Are we in a post-racial activity or uh, time within our military? So does the integration and diversity initiatives are no longer needed? No, I, I, I would say that we as humans are rather imperfect as to how we think. Uh, I, I think that we, we are better than we were in that our communities uh, and from whence we are, are recruiting individuals are pro far more integrated, but not necessarily totally so um, because we tend to still have those things that we prefer uh, and are comfortable with being uh, around and, ab and about. Um, so I think it is integration is still something that we don't necessarily have to look at it from a black-white uh, sort of scenario, uh, but I think we have to say how can we be better as a nation? How can we be better as an army? Um, well, when we have diversity of thought uh, and or a background, and religion, you name it, socially, uh, we are a stronger nation as a result of that. And so 
we have uh, relegated that typically to be a, a black, white, or racial thing. Uh, I think it's uh, across this, uh, a larger spectrum than that. So what are some of the lessons learned over the past few decades that you've experienced, and then how has Army leadership recognized and or embraced those lessons? Well, I guess I've seen it from two perspectives. One is personal, from a personal standpoint. Um, my experience in an all-black situation growing up and an all-white situation growing up, because when I went to through high school, uh, I went from being really in an all-black to an all-white. Mm -hmm. uh, I began to understand differences and, and, and the like from, from that particular perspective. Uh, but I think that that never stops uh, in terms of whether it's here in the United States or it's wherever you find yourself in the world. Uh, that as you have grown up in a more diverse environment uh, across that spectrum, whether it be racial, social, or whatever, uh, you can better interact with uh, those who are your allies and uh, those who are your enemy uh, to understand uh, how to uh, achieve something uh, together. And that's understanding what that other individual or trying to understand what that other individual, the opponent, the enemy, or the friend, the ally, uh, really and how they think. Mm -hmm. uh, my time overseas has just been as much of an education as any that I gained back here in the United States. Thank you. Uh, you've been a member and now past president of The Rocks. Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of background and then expectations? Certainly. Uh, the Rocks um, is a mentoring organization that had its birth uh, or origin uh, at Fort Leavenworth, and uh, it really started out as an organization that was focused on African Americans who were attending the Command and General Staff College. An individual by the name of uh, Colonel then, uh, Cartwright, Rock Cartwright, um, would host uh, the inbound students coming into CNGSC, which they were, they were a minority in terms of numbers, um, not only African-Americans, but in numbers as well. CGSC is Command and General, Sta General Staff College mm -hmm. at Fort Leavenworth. Um, and that is an intermediate uh, officer program mm -hmm. um, for our Army. Uh, and he would host uh, those in, uh, individuals, African-American officers attending, um, as an initial orientation uh, to really speak to what was going to be expected of them. Uh, because after that session typically most did not get to socialize uh, together because everybody was spread throughout the different courses and classes and by intent. Uh, so um, he really talked to them, talked to them about how to succeed. Uh, so uh, that had gone on for some time. He had been doing that for some time. A group of individuals who were there um, when they when they graduated. Uh, were assigned in the Washington area. And so they continue to uh, remain close, um, but more from a social standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was about two years, two to three years afterward, uh, they finally decided that, you know, why don't we do something uh, that is beneficial? Because this gentleman, Rock Cartwright, served as a mentor to us. Uh, and so the organization really had its uh, genesis there. Uh, they were struggling with how they were going to formalize it, not formalize it, but f come up with a name for, for the organization. 
And so for a period of time, they were known as the No Name Club um, and had developed a, a mentorship focus for the organization. Initially, they were only field grade officers because the officers coming out of Fort Leavenworth were all field grade. Uh, so the membership was focused at that level. African-American members? African-American members at that point, mm -hmm. and male. The, the uh, thing that uh, occurred, uh, the tragedy was that uh, then General Cartwright uh, had retired, and was uh, he and his wife had been out on, I don't know whether it was a business trip or a social trip, but uh, were flying back into Washington, and their plane crashed. And so immediately um, the name Iraq uh, became the name of the organization. So it's not an acronym. Uh, it's actually the name of Rock Cartwright, of which his family still uh, comes to our gala each year. And so we have retained a, or maintained a, a very close relationship uh, with the family. What would Rock Cartwright see different about the Rocks now from the time when he was uh, involved yeah. with it into what we're doing now? I think the basic uh, genesis of the, uh, of the mentorship piece would be what he would uh, understand and see now. I think the ability that we have def defined the difference between mentorship, coaching, and counseling, and uh, define that. And we define that not as uh, a self-determination, but a, a definition that uh, is the Army. So we have embraced uh, the Army's doctrine of mentorship, coaching, and counseling. Uh, the other thing I think he would see a difference, great difference, is the membership, uh, the scope of the membership. It's no longer just a field-grade officer organization. It's all officers, whether they be active, reserve, National Guard. Uh, we also have opened the aperture for uh, civilians. Uh, I felt here a few years ago as I attended an event and and came upon some senior civilians, and they were wondering uh, what their next job was, and they didn't have a mentor and so forth. And I uh, said, well, if you organize yourself, we would love to bring you aboard as a part of the ROCKS. And we know that the 9981 was preceded by 9980, which is for the integration of the U.S. government. Mm, correct. And that's, that's there another, um, I guess, step forward. Mm -hmm. uh, for the senior civilians and civilians and senior civilians. Mm -hmm. Do you have any parting thoughts about the anniversary? Again, 70 years this July. I think um, I, I personally have a view that if you are not a student of history, you're doomed to repeat it. Uh, so I think this would be a great time to take a pause and uh, really assess ourselves to see uh, have we made uh, success or has this been a success? And if so, uh, how do we continue to reinforce that so that we don't have to think about it in, in terms of a black-white or anything like that? Uh, how are we better as a uh, nation uh, where we are all one in terms of, at the end of the day, having one intent and desire for making our society better? Well, thank you for spending your time with us today. You provided very, very valuable insights, experiences, but also your thoughts about integration, diversity, and the value to our military. So glad to have you today, and I hope you have a good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. I certainly enjoyed this. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.